You're listening to audio from the Village Church, a community that's formed by the gospel and sent on God's mission, gathering weekly in the heart of downtown Hamilton, Ohio. For more information about the village or to connect with us, you can find us online at myvillagechurch.com. Today's focal passage is found in John chapter 21, verses 1 through 14. John 21, verses 1 through 14. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, We will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came into the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them, in fact. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish, this was, how, this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. This is the Lord, word of the Lord. You can have a seat, and the kids can now be dismissed to their class. Thanks, Ray. Appreciate it, bro. Good morning. Is this your Bible? It's good to see you all this morning. My name's Adam, and I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, Let's pray together, and then we'll jump in. God, thanks for uh, just the privilege to get together as your people. Thanks for the gift that is your local church. Thanks for everyone that's here this morning, no matter uh, what they bring into this place. uh, If they feel close to you or far, far away, we're grateful that they're here. Pray that the words uh, that are spoken this morning are not from me, but are directly from you and your word that you would apply in very specific ways particular ways uh, to the individual hearts in this room that you would illuminate the truth of who you are and who we are in light of that. And so, God, we just pray that your spirit would move as you would see fit uh, this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen. A central uh, feature of any good story is the origin story. Uh, it can happen chronologically uh, or it can happen uh, as, a, as a flashback. But otherwise, uh, this origin story gives us an opportunity to see a central character's background and their motivations, their experiences, and what made them who they are, what got them from here to there. So you think about your favorite your stories, whether they're written form, books, or movies. Do they have an origin story? Are there any Marvel or DC fans in the room? I don't want to step on anybody's toes. But what about a young uh, boy who witnesses the murder of his parents as a child? And that fuels his desire for justice. And he dedicates his life training both physically and mentally to become a dark vigilante. And he's using his wealth and his gadgets and his investigative skills to fight crime in Gotham City. Bruce Wayne becoming Batman. What about a nerdy high school student who's uh, on a uh, class trip and he gets bitten by a radioactive spider? The incident gives him spider-like powers, including agility and strength, the ability to cling to walls. With the tragic loss of his uncle, he learns that with great power comes great responsibility. Peter Parker becoming Spider-Man. Or what about an orphan child living with his cruel relatives, discovering on his 11th birthday that he's not like other children and enters a magical world and learns about his parents' legacy, his connection to the dark wizard, Lord Voldemort, and his, mag and his own magical abilities. And he attends Hogwarts school, school of Witchcraft and Wizardry, say that three times fast, where he battles dark forces and ultimately confronts Voldemort. Harry Potter becoming Harry Potter. And in my view, in one of the most epic stories ever told and, and one of the most epic origin stories is none other than David Webb becoming Jason Bourne. Going back to where it all started brings us uh, into the defining moments that shape the character's identity. We understand the, the circumstances that form them. We get to see the fuller picture that shaped them into the hero or the villain. And some of the best stories, maybe those things are blended together. At the end of John chapter 20 and verses 30 and 31, John writes, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. You could say that John has closed, uh, the, has closed the book on the primary focus of his writing. The evidence has been presented. John has presented all that we need to either render a verdict, to either reject Jesus or embrace him outright, putting all our faith in him and discover life in his name. And yet it's curious, and it's not by accident, that we're provided one more appearance of Jesus with his friends on a familiar shore by a familiar lake where they had fished countless times, where they had witnessed miracles, where they had witnessed Jesus' teachings, and where they were first called to leave everything they knew to follow this Jewish rabbi three years prior. 
See, this is no longer about proof or evidence, but it's something altogether different. He's taking them back to where it started to draw them more deeply into who he is and who they are in light of what he's done. The story that I'm referring to, this origin story, is found in Luke chapter 5. should be on the screens. And it reads like this. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him, this is Jesus, to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake. Just to be clear, Gennesaret, Tiberias, Sea of Galilee, all the same. We can talk about why that is, but. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. And getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. A couple of verses later, Jesus goes on to say, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. So three years prior to the story that we're looking at this morning, Jesus was teaching on a shore when he confronted them with a new reality that he was bringing and he asked them to join him. A lot has happened since that day and he providentially meets them on these very shores again to put his grace on display and to draw them more deeply into that reality and launch the church, which we're a part of even today. So our main idea this morning, which should be on the screen, is this. Jesus brings them back to where it all started, inviting them and us into life in his name. I'm going to read the first uh, five verses of our focal passage. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, Gennesaret, Galilee. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples were together. So there's seven of the disciples. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we'll go with you. They went out, got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. Our first point this morning is that life in his name is with a new identity. We don't know how much time passed from uh, the appearance of Jesus to Thomas that Pastor Scott preached through last week at the end of chapter 20 and this uh, resurrection, this post-resurrection experience. But here we find the disciples hanging out in Galilee. And we know that in uh, Matthew 28, after Jesus raised, he tells the disciples to go to Galilee and he We'll meet them there. So it's, it's natural that we find them hanging out there. And Peter says, I'm going fishing. And his friends were like, cool, we're not doing anything. Like, we'll go fishing with you. Uh, these guys weren't at home in big cities debating philosophers or engaging in politics. These guys were at home when they were on their own lake in their own boat catching fish. 
This was their old and their familiar life. It was who they are and it was what they did. They were ordinary fishermen when Jesus called them and that's who they are now. But you can only imagine what must be swirling through their minds as they waited. I mean, can you imagine? Where is he? Like for real, where, where's Jesus? When can we expect him to come back? Where does he go? Does he have a plan? Is everything really just gonna go back to normal after all we've seen and all we've done? What does it all mean? Does it mean anything? And yet on the other side of that, he really did raise from the dead. Like we, we saw him, he's alive. And they probably were uh, beginning to think about his teachings and at least starting to see the puzzle pieces as they were laid out on the table. Although they certainly couldn't put them all together, connect them in any discernible picture or plan of what was to come. We can only imagine just the roller coaster of emotions that they must've been having and the conversations that they were engaged in. And no doubt, as they waited expectantly with the uncertainty of these questions, there was a whole nother set of questions that were lurking just beneath the surface that Peter and others may have not even been able to put words to. Will he remember how dense we were when he was teaching us? How many stupid things we said, how we doubted, how, how scared we were, how scared we still are. And for Peter, replaying over and over and over again, that haunting picture of not once, not twice, but three times denying Jesus as he was mocked, tried, beaten, and executed. Even after he was the one who declared if everybody deserts you, I certainly won't. Even if it means I have to die. Just beneath the surface of their waiting and eager expectation, maybe there was some guilt, some shame, some self-doubt, some insecurity that was distorting their, their true identity of Jesus and what his death and resurrection had purchased for them. It is into this that Jesus stepped on that beach to meet them again and remind them of their true identity. And this sandy beach is all too familiar for those of us that follow Christ. And it's true for all of us. Having just returned from work empty-handed with nothing to show for our labor except the struggle of how tough life is and the fleeting moments of comfort that we cling to for security. So our first sub-bullet uh, under point number one is you are becoming something. We're all building our lives on something. There's never a time in your life that you're not being formed and shaped. And most of us, we're not aware of what's forming us, let alone what foundation that we're building our lives on. But you're building your lives on something that's shaping your motivations, your actions, your attitudes, and your deepest Longings. There is something that you are living for that shapes who you are becoming. 
And Jesus says this very clearly in Matthew 7 at the end of the Sermon on the Mount when he says that you're either building your life on his word, which looks like obedience to him, and that's a foundation, that's a rock, or anything else you're building your life on, which is a sandy foundation. And Jesus says that you will know what you're building on, not when things are going well, but when the rains come, when the rivers rise, when the winds blow, and they begin to pound your house, only then will the foundation that you're building on truly be revealed. And we can feel this, and we can sense this reality. When do you feel most secure in your life? What are the circumstances that surround this feeling of security that you have? When do you feel most insecure? When do you feel most uncertain? What are the circumstances that are surrounding your life? Where are you this morning with that question? This reality goes so deep that even the good things you do when you've just put a nice new addition on your house, a nice roof, you've just painted all the rooms, but all along you find out that you're building on sand. Real practically, what this means is that our experiences of sin and suffering, they drive us to create and hide behind false identities that take the shape of somewhere between having it all together, at least appearing to have it all together, or feeling just not even feeling worthy of love. Both are rooted in this self-preservation and the desperate need that emanates from every human heart, and that's the need to be fully known and fully loved. Those of us that appear to have it all together, we define ourselves by the jobs we have, the wise decisions that we've made, how much money we have in the bank, the cars we drive, the clothes we wear, where we get to vacation, the type of kids that we've raised. Our kids select baseball team and how well he or she is performing on that team. And we're caught in this endless game of comparing ourselves to others in every step of the way, just desperate to promote self at any expense. And as Christians, we do the same thing. We create subcultures, private or public school, or better yet, homeschool. How much we give, how much we serve, how much we pray, how much we read the Bible, how committed we are, the rules and the boundaries we set for our children, how much screen time do you allow? Do you have a curfew, yes or no? How effective is your family Bible time? We don't concern ourselves with sports or material possessions, but we do the same thing with, with spiritual pursuits. And for us, for those that appear to have it all together, if things don't go our way, it's not our fault. Our company doesn't appreciate us. Our spouse has changed. The coach of our child's team just doesn't know how great our kid is. The church doesn't offer the right things for us, and on and on. Our perception is distorted, and our identity is so fragile. It's just barely hanging on by a thread of someone else's validation. You know if the disciples had caught fish that night. There's no doubt that it would have been because of their masterful skill, their knowledge of the lake, their previous training, their dedication to the trade. 
And on the other side of this same coin, there's those of us that struggle with even feeling worthy of love. And failure rocks us to the core. Any success must be shouted from the social media mountaintops with a compulsion that we're not quite sure where it comes from to keep checking the likes and the counts. We're crushed by the weight of expectations in our careers and our relationships, and we seek community that will accept us for who we think we are. Our identity gets subsumed in the latest fad or trend or thing that comes along that just dulls the pain of not feeling accepted. We're on a search to be seen and known, and we will find it ultimately in something. This is a universal need that we have to feel justified in something or someone outside of ourselves. And so often we place it on our performance, what we do or don't do relative to others and find ourselves just manufacturing cheerleaders on the sidelines of our lives. You are becoming something. In the second bullet, Christ, Jesus became sin so we could become like him. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul writes, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is a beautiful summary of the gospel. God made Jesus sin, not sinful, but God made Jesus sin. He treated him as if he had done every offense against God that we have done, namely all of the building on sand. And when you believe that, when you place your faith in that, when you cling to him alone as your ultimate good and you begin to build your identity on his performance, not what you've done or will do, it says you become the righteousness of God. You become like Jesus. So what does this mean? Do all my actions just change in an instant? Do the circumstances of my life, I no longer struggle, I'll no longer suffer? It doesn't mean that. It means something far better. It means that when God looks at you, even right now, he sees, feels, and treats you exactly the way that he does Jesus. He loves you with the same love as he loves his eternal son. It means that God alone is the only justifier, the only validator, the only voice that your identity should be built on. It means you are free from sin and shame and free to become like Jesus. God has declared you and has given you his righteousness already. It means your foundation is rock solid and you no longer have to build on sand. David says it like this in Psalm 16, preserve me, O God, for in you 
I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. The the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Is God your refuge? Is he your only good? Has he shown you the path to life? Are you running to his presence for fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore? Or are you still chasing after other false gods of popularity, success, family, security, and comfort? None of these things are bad things in and of themselves, but none of them can bear the weight of being your only good and will ultimately crush you and leave you grasping for more and more while becoming less and less fulfilled. As the disciples were headed back to the shore, they had no idea that in the providence of God, they didn't catch anything that night. And in the providence of God, they were about to encounter Once again, the one that remade them. I just recently started following the Oklahoma women's softball team. I don't know if you guys uh, watch that. What they've done over the last several years has just been absolutely incredible. Um, They just won their third national championship. They won 52 games in a row. They finished with a 61-1 and record. Uh, and they actually won their 53rd game in a row with this last national title that they won. And last week I was scrolling the Twitters and I came across their press conference and saw three of them and I was just intrigued by how they responded to the questions. And so like you do, you go to YouTube, you do some YouTube research and Grace Lyons, uh, she wrote, she was one of the stars, look it up, it's fantastic. Um, She was one of the ones that was on the press conference and I found a YouTube uh, video of where she had written a letter to softball, and it's called Dear Softball, and I just want to read a little bit of that. I fell in love with you when I was a little girl, always carrying around my glove, throwing tennis balls off the wall, hitting with my dad in the park. I played with the boys and there was, when there was no softball, and then finally switched over once recruiting started, and that's when it started to get serious. I hungered for competition and strived for excellence, but for a while, you were something that my hands had such a tight grip on. My identity was tied so tightly to a game, and that leads, to a, that leads to failure most of the time, and I rode the roller coaster of emotions. Then I met Jesus. I learned to have a loving father who died for my sins and has a plan for my life, a plan to give me a hope and a future. My perspective changed when I realized you were just something that I did and not who I was. Jesus tells me who I am, and I wanted to bring this light into softball into the softball world and play the game differently. The Lord has given me a platform to shine a light that the world tries to dim. The expectation is to idolize you and the promise is joy comes from reaching a goal that you have put all your effort into. Yes, we as Christians are expected to work hard at all that we do for Christ, but the real victory has already been won on the cross. Jesus dying for my sin and saving me. Because of this, I have an eternal hope that allows me to play your game free with fullness of joy that comes only from the Lord. Sincerely, Grace Lyons. When Grace met 
Jesus, her ultimate goal shifted from being the best and achieving all that there was in a game to who Jesus was and what he had done. This defined who she was. And now she was free to enjoy the game. God had blessed her and to play it for him and enjoy him above all. And she was free to use her gifts to proclaim Jesus as Lord in all things. Which brings us to our second point this morning, and that is life in his name is on mission. I'm gonna read verse six. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Past two winters, I've gone ice fishing in Northern Michigan with uh, my dad and my two brothers. Don't worry, I'm not gonna try to equate myself to the disciples. I am not a fisherman at all. Uh, this year, or this uh, first time we went, we actually hired somebody, uh, a shanty that was already out on the ice. We kind of paid him to put us where the fish were and also to make sure we had a hot pot of coffee. And the most important thing was he drilled all the holes for us before we got there. Apparently, we had learned everything we needed that first year because older brothers like, we don't need to pay. We can just do it ourselves next year. Uh, we had learned enough. We're ready to go. So it's nothing like trying to figure out you know, what you're doing and temperatures in the low teens. It's dark outside and you're on a frozen lake. But we had bought all the supplies. Uh, we had gotten a four-wheeler uh, that's going to help us haul supplies back and forth. And we trusted older bro to get us where we needed to go to catch our haul. I'll spare you the details of that trip. But one of the unanimous lessons learned, we should have sprung for the battery-powered auger to drill the holes in the ice. Like think this motion, eight to 10 inches of ice that might as well have been concrete. I think we had three heart attacks before we ever wet a line. Uh, at one point on the second day, I was outside. Uh, we weren't having a great day. So I was just outside fishing one of the holes and you know, we spaced them 15 or 20 yards apart and I was just kind of sitting on the ice. And the second time I let the line down, something grabbed it. It almost ripped the pole out of my hand. My older brother was about 20 yards away. I start yelling because we haven't caught a ton uh, up to that point. Yelled to get over here. He runs over and slides down by the hole. I'm wrestling this thing up. I can start to see the fish in the hole and I, I have no idea how I'm gonna get it out. He grabs the line, pulls it up and about the time he gets the fish all the way out, the line breaks. Listen, <laughs> he's older than me. He's slower than me. I'm more athletic than him. And yet, he did this move that I'm not sure where it came from, and he tackled this fish before it went all the way down back in the hole, and it went flopping. And again, if you, I'll spare you that. But there's a number of ways that I could use that illustration uh, to what it feels like to evangelize people, but all that to say, like, don't tackle anybody. This miracle, though, pointed them to the fact that Jesus alone is the one that can supply all of their needs. I'm sure they had an aha moment after coming in and not catching fish. And it was a reminder of the promise that he was going to make them fishers of men when he first called them. He was calling them back to the mission. And so Jesus never did anything by accident. He wanted them to experience his providence and his provision in all things and call them to the mission he was sending them on and make them fishers of men. 
I did a little research in fishermen uh, in first century Palestine. Uh, there's various techniques, as you can imagine, and different kinds of equipment they use. There's nets, there's hard lines and hooks and drag nets and all kinds of different methods depending on what you're targeting and uh, you know, what the conditions are. Fishing was also a family business. So with this profession, it's passed down from generation to generation. It's not uncommon to have multiple family members uh, that are involved in the fishing operation. Um, and they would go to the, the Sea of Galilee in very small boats, uh, a few of them in each boat. And they'd fish for, for, long, for long hours, casting their nets and, and waiting for a successful catch. First sub-bullet is disciples are called to fish. I don't know what the mission of God evokes in you. What you think of when you hear Jesus declare in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the end of the age. Perhaps you imagine a street preacher with a megaphone outside of Great American Ballpark, just hoping to get someone's attention. Maybe you're that person that you boldly share your faith in public. That's great. I think there's a ton that we can learn from that example. Or maybe you think of Mother Teresa, quietly serving the poorest among us, the orphan, the fatherless, over a lifetime just wrecking her body to demonstrate the love of God to a world in desperate need of it. Or maybe you just think of just awkward interactions. You're fearful of not having the right answers. You're fearful of offending people or just making it weird. And next time you have to bump into them, like I get it. But are you fishing? Have you been caught up in the net of God's goodness, in his grace, in his love, in his kindness, in his mercy that you can't help but tell others and point him in word and action to this Jesus? Have you caught a vision for the kingdom? Just what he's doing in our world, that it's like finding a treasure in a field and you would sell everything just to buy that field and possess it. Are you fishing? Jesus will provide every step of the way, the boat, the bait, the net, the pole, the line, and the fish. He is calling you though to fish, not out of guilt or compulsion, but out of the overflow of grace that you have been shown in the life that you now possess in his name. So if you struggle to share your faith, like, like hear me, legit, that's okay. Most of us do. But when you struggle, don't go looking for different bait or how to upgrade your equipment. Look for Jesus standing on the shore in the morning dawn, ready and willing to provide. Our second sub-bullet is disciples are called to fish together. Much like a first century Palestinian fishing operation, making disciples is a family business. You're not meant to go it alone. God is graciously building his church and is meant to be the primary means that we're being discipled 
and that's how disciples are made. And I get it. This is not popular these days. I recognize that. It's easy and very deceptive to think that by taking in information on TikTok and Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and YouTube, that somehow this replaces the flesh and blood community described in scripture, that somehow this serves as an even better or more effective means to participate in the purpose God has for the church. As if the church was meant to just serve us and meet our needs and just be one more thing that we consume. In Ephesians chapter three, and it should be up on your screens, eight through 11, Paul writes this, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Does that sound like any view of church that you've experienced or been shaped by? We're called to be a community of believers on mission to make known, which just means to put on display the manifold, the numerous, the varied, the abundant wisdom of God to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. God's mission has a church. And so when you hear us invite you every morning to join the community, join the family, and join the mission, this is what we are inviting you into. Week after week, we talk about getting plugged into a community group. This is what we're inviting you into. Not always to consume, to have all your needs met, but to be swept up into the mission of God as we experience it together as a local church. We get to live in and proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ together. So are you fishing? And are you fishing with family? It's a family affair, mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, and generation to generation. My brother wasn't there that afternoon on the frozen lake. I would have never gotten that fish out of the hole. We need each other. The disciples needed each other. The universal church that was established on Pentecost with Peter's gonna preach not too long from now and 3,000 people will be caught up in the nets. This church is being fashioned into the body of Christ to boldly live and proclaim the kingdom of heaven throughout all ages, all times, and all places. Which brings me to the final point this morning. Life in his name at his table. Verses seven through 17. That disciple whom Jesus loved, it's our boy John, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, and they were not far from land, but about 100 yards off. And when they got out of land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. 
So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he had raised from the dead. There are two ways that you can describe your wife or your husband, your boyfriend or girlfriend or significant other when someone asks you, hey, what are they like? You can respond by saying that she's really nice, uh, brown hair, brownish eyes. She's about 5'1". She thinks she's 5'2", but she's probably 5'1". She was born on August 17th, 19-something in Nashville. Her parents are Scott and Glenna. She likes to read. She's super competitive at board games. Or you could say, she is the most... I'm not going to be able to get through this, by the way. Ugh. She's the most kind and gracious person you'll meet. She's exactly the same in private as in public. It still shocks me when she lights up just to have a conversation. Spending time with her and being present in her view is one of the greatest gifts that you could give her. She doesn't require, <clears throat> require material things to make her happy. She's a model servant. Her friends know it. She prioritizes others above herself. This is her superpower. Oh, gosh. Oh, I'm such a baby. Yeah. It is a joy to be married to her, and I feel undeserving every day. What's the difference? One is sharing facts about her. The other is describing what it means to be in relationship. And it isn't devoid of, of facts, but it's demonstrating a deep knowledge coupled with the experience of being in relationship. The first is easy. The second takes work and can get real messy at times. So how do you experience Jesus? Do you know facts about him? That he came to earth, that he lived, that he died for your sins? He died on a cross. He raised on a third day. Do you know that he performed miracles, healed the sick, raised the dead, gave sight to the blind, he walked on water, he multiplied fishes and loaves? Do you know that the proper response to the gospel is to be baptized, to take communion, attend church services regularly? Is that what it means to know Jesus? first sub-bullet is we are invited to the table. I know it's an exclamation point in our Bibles, but I think when John says it is the Lord, he's whispering it. He recognizes what is happening in that boat and who the man on the shore was. And then Peter jumps out of the boat and runs to Jesus. His response was transformed from depart from me for I'm a sinful man to I can't get to you fast enough. I can't get to where you are. 
and be in your presence fast enough. Peter's response reminded me uh, of those videos of like military families and somebody uh, coming home after a long deployment and surprising their family. The ones that get me are, are the mom or the dad that come home. Um, I don't know if any of you have gone down that rabbit hole. As you can tell, I like a good cry, and so I just do that and just cry. What is that? Those short videos that you're able to see, just a person go through their normal life, carrying on the mundane things of life, school and sports, not expecting to be in the very presence of the one that has loved them and cared for them and provided for them and brought them their security and formed their identity in ways that have given their life purpose. If a physical relationship can call that out of us, how much more when we come to know the author of all things who created all that we see, whose very imprint is stamped on every human, how much more and how much more real is Christ's love for his kids in his felt presence? Jesus is our gracious host who invites us to the table to come and have breakfast with him. For those in Christ, the table's already been set, everything provided. He just invites us to dine and to participate in the meal. I thought it was odd that he asked them to bring some of their fish, but what a grace to get to relate to Jesus in this way. And yet we may know this mentally, and there's so much more he has for us, which the second sub-bullet, we dine on his words in his presence. Several of us uh, guys here are going through Tim Keller's book, Prayer. It's been a gift and a joy to journey through that book with some of these guys and struggle to just encounter the Lord in real ways through scripture and praying together. And near the beginning of that book, Tim Keller writes this, prayer is the only entryway into genuine self-knowledge. It, it is also the main way we experience deep change, the reordering of our lives. Prayer is how God gives us so many of the unmanageable things he has for us. Indeed, prayer makes it safe for God to give us many of the things we most desire. It is the way we know God, the way we finally treat God as God. Prayer is simply the key to everything we need to do and be in life. We must learn to pray. We have to. We've gone on to learn that prayer is responding to God and, and who he is and what he's done, that it's a real two-way conversation that starts with scripture that we get to dine, feast, that we get to take in scripture and pursue his presence through prayer. And in doing that, we get to encounter God. Through seeking his faith, face in scripture and prayer, we get to commune with him in real ways and experience him in ways that we wouldn't otherwise. We get to meet him on the beach. Jonathan Edwards, in his sermon, A Divine and Supernatural Light, has a famous illustration of honey, just as I described my wife, there are two ways that you can describe honey and, and uh, its sweetness. You can know it with the rational mind, and you can also know it with the sensing tongue. You can know that honey is sweet because somebody told you it was sweet, and they described it to you, and you believe them. And you can actually taste the sweetness of honey yourself and know fully, mentally as well as experientially. And so when you make this move from only mentally knowing to actually tasting, you may say something like, I knew it was sweet, but I didn't really realize what that meant. I knew, but I didn't know. 
So Edwards concludes that there's a difference between having an opinion that God is holy and gracious and having a sense of the loveliness of beauty and the holiness and graciousness on your heart. I don't know where any of that strikes you this morning when it comes to that kind of knowing. Maybe you know exactly what's being described. Maybe you're in a spiritual desert just longing for any food or any water. Or maybe you're here this morning and you're just considering Jesus, who he is, and what that means to you. But as we conclude, I want to invite the band to come on up. There's one origin story that is more true and more epic than any story ever told. And it begins and ends in a garden with a loving God, with his people. And there's a lot that happens from that first garden to the second garden of the new heavens and the new earth. And I just wanna say two things as we conclude. One, there's no other hope to be found in this world or the next other than the man, Jesus Christ. You can spend your life trying to build on anything else and it will only lead to emptiness and despair and ultimately eternal separation from God. Or two, when you trust this God, he will not let you go. He promises to remake your identity, to bring you into a kingdom of light that is advancing, and he's the most gracious host along the way. Jesus brought them back to where it all started, inviting them and us into life in his name. As we prepare to respond uh, this morning, the band's gonna continue to lead us in song. There'll be some questions up on the screen that will help uh, reflect, prepare your hearts to take communion, repent. If you're in Christ this morning, uh, we invite you to come up and, and take communion. This is for you. Uh, if you're not a believer this morning, then this isn't for you, but Jesus is. We would love to talk to you about what he might be doing in your life. My wife and I will be in the back over there. Please come and talk to us. There'll be a couple of folks over by the red tree that would love to pray for you. I'll turn it over to the band now.